So this morning we are going to be uh, beginning a short series. Uh, we'll be spending two, uh, two weeks uh, this Sunday and next Sunday on the theme of missions. I'd actually planned three Sundays, but, um, but I had to suddenly go out of town last week. So, um, uh, But we are going to be looking first here at uh, the very heart of missions. So this is our missions month, the time where we uh, consider our missions commitments for the next year uh, so we can plan our missions budget and notify our missionaries as to what our financial commitments uh, will be. And so we'll be uh, passing out the, the missions giving slips probably in early December. Um, but uh, for now, uh, we need to, before we get to our giving pledges and what we're going to give, we need to go to why it is that we give it all. What is our calling uh, in the support of the work of missions? And so we're going to look at 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. Uh, you can find our passage on nine, page 991 in the Pew Bible. I will also bring the text up on the screen. Be reading from the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. The Apostle Paul speaking, saying, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it to his congregation, to his people. So as we prepare for our holiday festivities, uh, we are, as I said, taking time to consider the work of missions. And as we uh, think through our, our missions giving for next year, we need to get back to, uh, we need to, one, we, we've been doing this for many years now, and, and so we have to be careful that it doesn't just become routine, that we don't just go, okay, well, I'm just going to, you know, uh, take the slip and fill it out and throw it in the plate, and there, there on we go. But why is it that we give to missions? You know, one of the things, you know, I like to ask when, when we do annual planning for leadership is, you know, just always ask the question, should we do Sunday school this year? And then you always get a strange look like, what is wrong with you? What are you doing? Like, what do you, why, do you, why are you asking that question? And just reminding that there is no biblical commandment to do Sunday school. So if we're going to do Sunday school, then why are we doing it? And it can't, the answer cannot be simply just because that's what we always done it. You know, like it's always what we've always done. And so we're just going to keep on doing it. Why? Why do we do Sunday school? And so uh, we do Sunday school as an intentional equipping of, uh, of adults, of, church, of, of members in the church, and also as an assistant to parents in the discipleship of their children. That's why we do Sunday school. And so we remind ourselves of that. We ask ourselves, why 
And so we come to this as also, why do we do missions? Now, there's even, you could make a much stronger case that we are commanded to give to the work of missions from the case of the New Testament. In the example of Paul, in the example of how the church has supported Paul. Uh, you can make a much stronger case for that. And so even, and so even more, though, we want to go back and ask, why then? Why should we give to missions? It helps us to understand and to even get excited about. Uh, the, because we're called to sacrifice something from our own bank account, something from our own side. And, because, and the only thing is, if we're not going to go, then we sin. Right? If we're not going to sacrifice our own lives in going and going, which is fine, not everyone can go. But if we're not going to go, then, then why are we sending? Why, uh, why am I investing in this? Why am I doing this? Why am I giving on top of the money that I already give to the tithe and my tithe, my work to the work of the church? Why am I giving on top of that to the work of missions? What is the purpose there? And so, and, and so as we do this, as we consider missions, uh, we must see that uh, missions is simply the outworking of the church's mission in the world to go to the nations and to make disciples, baptizing and teaching them to obey all that Christ commanded. Missions is the intentional extension of the local church's mission as we partner with other Christians and other churches to fulfill the Great Commission, the commission that the Lord has given to us. And I say all this, and I preface all this with all, uh, everything I've said already, because missions can get disconnected, not only from the mission of the church, but from the believers who even support missions, who even give money to missions. Now, we may never have traveled outside of our own state, let alone to the far-off places in which some of our missionaries serve. And so how does what they're doing there connect with our Christian experience here? And so today we're considering this text from uh, a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote a young pastor named Timothy as he was serving a church in the city of Ephesus. And as Paul writes to Timothy, this letter that's filled with all sorts of pastoral wisdom, he interrupts his first chapter to share the heart of his apostolic ministry, which was essentially, his ministry was almost, we would say, as almost as a missionary church planter as he went from region to region, planting churches and appointing elders over those churches. And we ask, what is it that drives the apostle? And fittingly, as we have Thanksgiving this Thursday, we find out that what drives the apostle is gratitude. Gratitude. Gratitude for his experience of grace that he relates to us here. Gratitude as well as his confidence in the gospel message itself. And we're going to look at each one this morning. First, we, need to, we will see this morning at the heart of missions is gratitude for our experience in grace. The heart of missions is gratitude for our experience in grace. We see this in verses 12 through 14. And, and we're kind of looking at this passage in three aspects. In what we are in verse 12, in what we were in verse 13, and what we were given in, verse, in the second half of verse 13 and verse 14. And so first, Paul uh, moves us to consider what we are 
now, presently, in Christ, in verse 12. Paul says that he is one who has been made strong by Jesus Christ, our Lord. That Jesus has done this, he says, by considering Paul faithful and appointing Paul to his service. Paul, who has a, had a notorious past that he will revisit in a moment, was graciously called to service for the sake of Christ. He was unworthy of such a calling, yet Christ called him not only uh, to missionary service, but specifically as the apostle, the sent one, the name that the word in the Greek literally means, to the Gentiles. For Jesus made Paul strong because Paul, would, as he said in the book of Acts, would have to learn how much he would suffer for his name. And every missionary who is sent out has been thus considered faithful by the Lord Jesus and appointed to his service. There are no self-appointed apostles. There are no self-appointed missionaries. There are plenty of pretenders out there, but every true missionary of the church is one who has been charged and sent out by Christ. The service of our missionaries then, the service they render, is not immediately to the churches even that they serve, but to the, or the people or the churches that, are, that send them. But the service they render is unto Christ, whom they represent to the world. But this is also true of us here in the church. It is true of every elder, of every deacon, of every member of the church. For the Great Commission is for all of Christ's people, albeit in different ways, who have different callings. But the calling of our lives is first and foremost in service to Jesus Christ, our Lord, who has made us strong and called us, called us to represent him as his ambassadors to the world. And so we ought to begin here with gratitude for as those who represent the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, considering the privilege of such a calling. And, 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 and that privilege, that sense of privilege and that sense of gratitude will only increase as we go on with Paul to consider what we were before that calling came to us, as he does in verse 13. Paul stands in amazement as he contrasts his present calling as an apostle of Jesus Christ with his past state. A past state that while we may not share in the exact specifics, we share in its nature. Paul says that he was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. Now these three characteristics were expressed primarily in his opposition to the church. And the gospel is recorded in the book of Acts. A blasphemer is simply one who slanders God and slanders God's people, speaks falsely about him. But how could Paul, who says he himself was a Hebrew of Hebrews, Pharisee of Pharisees, how could Paul be a blasphemer? He's a guy who said even the other Pharisees were jealous of what a good Pharisee I was. How is that guy a blasphemer? He's a blasphemer. He was a blasphemer because he stood opposed to the gospel. He was opposed to Jesus being the Christ, 
and violently attacked the body of Christ, the church. Thus, he was a blasphemer, a slanderer. It is no small thing for Jesus to say to, when he confronted Paul, uh, who, who of course was going by Saul at the time, uh, at, at the time of his conversion, Saul, Saul, uh, why are you persecuting me? To attack Christ's church is to attack Christ himself. To demean Christ's church is to, to demean Christ. And so Paul highlights here that not only was he a rank sinner, but he was even worse. He was a wicked persecutor of the church of God and thus stood opposed to God himself. Now, I come out of the Baptist tradition and we are uh, in the Baptist tradition. We are want to make exaggerations in our testimonies because they always talk about testimonies when you give your testimony. And, and sometimes you kind of feel a pressure. You're not told to lie, but you feel a pressure to kind of just kind of make it more interesting. Just kind of puff it up a little bit, you know, and. And uh, and so um, and so we ought to be careful not to do that, but we don't want to commit the Presbyterian era error and be like, what's a testimony? We don't have testimonies. And it's like, you don't <laughs> like like what, what, what do you mean? And so um, rather it, a testimony is simply relating God's grace at work in your life. What has Jesus done for you? What has Jesus done for you in the gospel? How has God's grace been personally and specifically applied to you? Not only in your conversion, uh, but also in your light, Christian life. Testimony, our testimony of God's grace and goodness doesn't stop when we become believers. It continues forward. You know, before the message of grace was received, I myself was a confused and depressed young man without hope in the world. I was afraid and lonely and did not see the value of my own life. I was enslaved to the lust of the flesh, the desires of the world. I can remember distinctly what I was like before I knew the Lord. But there are others of us who ne have never known a day, can't remember a day when they didn't believe. You were raised in the church by godly, if but maybe flawed, but godly parents who did their best. Though you, you, you've had ups and downs. You just, you, you've just known the Lord all your life. You'd say, I, I haven't always been faithful to him, uh, but God has been gracious to me. Congratulations, you found your testimony. We do not have to be, be able to remember the time, the moment that we were converted to have a testimony of God's grace. We know what it's like, even as believers, in moments of our lives where we give into temptation, where we give into sin, and we turn away from the Lord and pursue the, the, the desires of the world, the desires of the flesh. Our struggles against sin and the flesh in our life well prepare us to consider what life apart from Christ is and what a glorious and blessed thing the mercy of God is to sinners who do not know him. But no matter the uh, the, the this particulars of our memory of our faith, Paul invites us to consider the grace that each of us as believers has been given in Christ in verses, uh, the rest of verse 13 and verse 14. Because Paul here contemplates the mercy that he was shown. He says, uh, he, he says he was shown mercy because he acted in ignorance and, and unbelief, 
but he, he says because here, not in a causative sense, as though he were shown mercy because he just didn't understand what he was doing. And so God shows mercy because he was ignorant. He didn't realize that, that he was doing sins. And so God said, okay, well, I'll show you mercy because you don't know that you're doing bad things. Rather, what he means here is that he's saying, I was shown mercy because in his ignorance and unbelief, there was no other way to save him. He was not going to wise up. He was not going to get better. He was living out in ignorance and unbelief. And the only thing that could save him was mercy. Why else would he say what he says in verse 14? That the grace of our Lord abounded to him with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Notice how Paul does not abstract or separate mercy, faith, and love from the person of Jesus Christ. If you get him, you get them. Mercy, faith, and love are not merely blessings that Christ bestows like a, like a blessed divine postman delivering packages of salvation at your door. These things are communicated to those who are in union with him. Mercy is the gift of God to those who do not deserve it, but so is faith and so is love. The love that he bestows upon us and the love for God that he kindles inside us through regeneration of our souls. These things, Paul says, overflowed to him. The, the word there, I prefer the translation, abound. These things abounded to me, he said. That is, the Lord did not send a, you know, a, a reasonable amount of mercy, a reasonable amount of faith, a reasonable amount of love. These things overflowed. They abounded to him through the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And we are here invited to consider the mercy, faith, and love that, it ab that have abounded to our own souls in Jesus Christ like a spigot that was opened and has just never been turned off. Because that is the heart of missions. What we have, we desire to share with the world around us. We desire to share the faith and, and love and mercy that God gives, whether it's on the college campus, whether it's the church plant in Monroe, Louisiana, whether it's the, the church in the UK or the missionary work going on in Central Asia. We want the mercy of God to abound to other sinners in the world. We want them to experience the, the faith and love that are in Jesus that we have experienced, if not even more. And we must understand that mercy, faith, and love only come in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the grace of God. We support the work of missions then because there are people who do not know God, who do not have the love of God in their life, who do not know his mercy. We're talking about students on the, on, on the campus of the University of Pittsburgh. Muslims who do not have the scriptures or in a faithful explanation of the scriptures that they can receive through the Arabic study Bible and children of Abraham. We're talking about the secularized citizens of the UK near the area of Hull. We're talking about the residents of Monroe, Louisiana, 
and unbelievers of various stripes in Central Asia. We want them, these people who are living and breathing right now, to hear about the gospel, the gospel of grace that saved us. We want them to know the one who is saving us, that they may join us in praising him for salvation. The heart of missions is born, not of something that we have an experience that we want others because it's, you know, it's good for them, right? It's that, it's that thing where it's like, I don't want to eat those vegetables, but, I, I, but you should because it's good for you. Like, that, that's not what we're doing here. We want them to share, to share in the grace that we have experienced ourselves. What God has done for us in Jesus, we want them to experience. And so we need to ask ourselves today, what has God done for you? Take some time today and reflect on that question. What has God done for you in Jesus? Not only if you can remember the time where you came to faith, but since then, what has God done for you in Jesus? What does he continue to do for you in Jesus? The ways that we have walked away or tried to pull away from the Lord and how he has brought us back. You know, that's prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We sing the song. Do we mean it? We're saying God in his sovereign mercy restrains us and he brings us back. He reigns us in. He shows us our love. He's not just the, uh, you know, we're the prodigal son and he's the father that one time. Sometimes he's that's multiple instances where we come. Dirtied from the pigsty to be received again. Or sometimes we're the elder brother. Bitter and resentful. Whom he appeals to us and softens our hearts and reveals to us our pride, but welcomes us none, uh, nonetheless. So let us consider what is the work of grace that God has done and continue to do for us. And let us have good hope if we're if we're despairing uh, that God will continue to work his grace in us today and tomorrow. Secondly. The heart of missions is defined by the message of grace. The heart of missions is born from our experience in grace, but it is also defined by the message of grace. And we see this in verses 15 to 17. I love verse 15. I love it. I love it. I love it. Uh, I love the simplicity of it uh, because Paul says here, let, let, let me get, let me just tell you what the message is. And, and, and here's what we can all agree on. Everyone should agree on this, that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I've got a lot of books in my office, and, uh, and uh, I've got more books than I have shelf space, all right? And someone say, Eric, might say, Eric, you have a problem. I say, I agree. I need more bookshelves, <laughs> right? Uh, and so, uh, but uh, I've got these large volumes, uh, systematic theology and biblical theology and historical theology and biblical studies and commentaries, and I've got all, all these things. But but the, in the majority of the books, uh, um, I've got some I've got some fiction down there in the cupboard, and I have a little small section that I like to I like to call heretical garbage uh, that I just keep on hand just to because uh, um, I need to be aware of things. Uh, but uh, but but the most uh, most of the stuff, especially the theological solid Christian stuff, is born of this message. The reason these authors, these Christian authors, have written these books, have done these studies, produced volumes, books that are longer than the Bible about portions of the Bible, right? Okay. Why? 
They're doing it because Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. You could almost say everything else is a footnote to that statement. But we can get off that point. We can lose that, that core message. When a church has been around for a while, our church has been around since 1950. You know, when a church has been around for a while, when we've been in the faith for, for a while, we can start acting as though, we don't say it, we don't say it actively in our minds, but we can start acting though as uh, Jesus came into the world to save conservative people. Jesus came into the world to save decent people like us. Jesus came into the world to save people who have done some bad things, but not that bad of things. Paul says, nope. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. But I want us to consider the theological power. Simple, simple statement. But the theological power of that statement is pregnant with meaning. I mean, think about Jesus, whose name means Yahweh is salvation. What does it mean for him to come into the world? What does that accept the doctrine of the incarnation of the eternal son? The second person of the Trinity taking to himself a human nature that he might be born into a world of sin under the law, that he might become a curse for us in order to redeem us from sin and death. His purpose, Paul says, from the time of his birth onward, his purpose in even the incarnation itself, from the time that he was an adolescent and founded the temple of his father, the time of his adulthood where he came into his ministry, his miracles, his teaching, every breath he took, his, his, certainly his death and his resurrection were to a singular purpose, to save sinners. The salvation of sinners required the incarnation of the Holy Son. Our sin required the incarnation, required the birth of the Savior, for him to come and suffer rejection and humiliation and even excruciating death and even the fire of judgment upon the cross so that we could be saved. And we need to beware, especially in our modern time, of downplaying the significance of sinners. Someone says, well, aren't we all sinners? In order to dismiss the seriousness of sin. I mean, if we were all murderers, would that make it better? Aren't we all murderers of a sort? That doesn't make it less bad. That makes that worse. The volume of evil doesn't lessen it, even if it numbs us to it. Are crimes less evil simply because more people do them? Or does this speak to the perverse nature of flesh, which desires above all to justify and worship itself? And thus declare, we have no need of grace, for we're not really that bad. In modern times, it's offensive to call anyone a sinner. We must teach people, they say, to love themselves, to embrace themselves, to celebrate themselves. They don't need pastors or, or other people tearing other people down. And I certainly acknowledge 
The past abuse of terms like sinner that can be used to uh, use guilt, wield guilt like a cudgel to beat people into submission. It has been misused in the past. However, we do no one any kind of service. We encourage them to embrace delusions that somehow they have escaped the reach of sin. It is mentally psychologically and emotionally healthy to say with David that we were born in in iniquity, that our hearts are untrustworthy with Jeremiah, to agree with Jesus, that our defilement is not what goes into us, but what comes out from our hearts upon our lips. I mean, if you think about that, that is the theology today. Remember, there's nothing wrong with you. You're wonderful, amazing, beautiful, glorious all-stars. What's wrong with you is everything outside of you that's causing you to doubt how awesome you are. Unless you disagree, and then you're terrible and awful, right? To call another person a sinner is simply to acknowledge the same spiritual need that we have. Because Paul highlights that he is the foremost of sinners. He had been an active enemy of the church and had done great harm to Christians. I can only wonder when when some people who had been persecuted by Saul heard that he had become Paul the Apostle. That they, they, uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised, and this is speculative, but I wouldn't be surprised if some people wrestled with that. But whether or not that was right for him to be able to do that. But the Lord's grace is powerful. Paul doesn't run from the reality of what he was before the grace of God came in, and neither should we in our evaluations of ourselves or in our interactions with the world. Because if there are no actual sinners in the world, then why in the world does does anyone need saving? But we know that we are sinners saved by grace. Indeed, the sinfulness of humanity is one of the few undeniable facts of human existence that has borne a consistent testimony in all recorded history. It is undeniable. And this highlights for us how salvation is a testimony of God's grace to others in us and through us. Paul highlights this in verse 16. Paul shares that it was on account of his abject sinfulness and wickedness that he was shown mercy because he could not save himself. Further, he says that he is proof of the limitless patience of Christ, of the depths of the grace of God. He says his life is a clear testimony of the grace and patience of Christ as an example, as even a pattern for those who are about to believe unto eternal life. He is saying here that his testimony, his witness, is such that any person, as sinful as they may be, can look at him and have perfect confidence that if God can forgive Paul, that he can forgive them too. It is a statement simply, if God can save me, then he can save you. We support missions then 
because it naturally aligns with the very purpose of Christ himself, who, as we said, came into the world to save sinners. Sinners are in the world who do not know God and face eternal judgment for their sin, but Jesus has come to save all those who will trust in him. We don't know who they are. We've not been given a list. The means by which that comes about is by God's people telling others about Christ. And so we support missionaries to take the message of grace to sinners throughout the world that they might believe and have eternal life. Our desire is not to bring people down to take them from a better position and make them worse, but take them from the worse and have them move into a better state, into a glorious state. As Paul said to to Agrippa, who said, would you so quickly convert me? You think you're going to get me that quick? And he said, I wish that you would be just like me, except for my chains. Right? He says, I wish you would be just as I am, just without the chains. And man, isn't that such a statement that we should take to the world? I want you to be as I am, but without my chains, without the things that are binding upon me, the things that are afflicting me right now, I don't wish those upon you, but I wish you the grace and eternal life that comes only in the name of Jesus Christ. Trust in him. So we have confidence that if God can save us, he can save others. And that message is sent by the life and the lives, indeed, of our missionaries that we support, who also in themselves serve as living testimonies of grace. The impulse behind Bailey Presbyterian Church's missions program is like, here, here's our theme. Here's, here's our theme. If God can save sinners like the members of Bailey Presbyterian Church, then he can save you too. That's our banner. So God has raised up missionaries. He has brought us providentially into partnership with them that they might bring the message of grace that has freed us from the bondage of sin and give eternal life. And there is a final goal that Paul demonstrates for us in verse 17 which is the message of grace, ultimately results in praise. John Piper rightly said uh, that missions exist because worship doesn't. And Paul, as he muses upon his, uh, salvation and certainly the grace of God to save sinners, the missionary purpose of Christ, he just he can't help but burst forth with the doxology of praise. He says, I don't care if it's not the end of my letter, I'm going to praise God right here in chapter 1. And the grace of God in the gospel leads Paul to rejoice, as we see here, in the kingship of God. To rejoice in the nature of God, that he is eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God. And so note how the imminent and grace of the gospel that meets us individually is connected to the transcendent being and nature of God. How it leads to that transcendent praise of the glorious one. And Paul ascribes to this God what he deserves. Honor and glory forever and ever. Because the heart of missions is not to get people to sign up for a club. club, To just join a group 
just, we're miserable and we want you to get in here and be as miserable as we are. Our goal is, is for the praise of God to spread throughout the earth. Our hope and desire is for the worship of God and thus the joy of humanity to increase and to spread with the experience of grace in the gospel that results in the praise of our praiseworthy Savior and Creator. We support missions because the heart of missions is worship that is the result of the goodness and grace of God and the gospel. And so the heart of missions is the very heart of the mission of the church, that we are sinners saved by grace, now regarded not as sinners by God, but as saints unto the Lord. All by grace, by the grace, the love, and the faith that are in Jesus Christ, which abounded in the mercy of God to our souls in the gospel. And our cup overflows. And we desire for more people to experience what we have, what we know, and who we worship. And so let us today consider the work of grace that God has done in our own lives. Let us take up the mission to spread the worship of God through the gospel and that missionary purpose of Christ who came into the world to save sinners here in our community and through the lives of our missionaries that more and more sinners would know the grace and the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in Christ we have salvation. In Christ, we have glory. In Christ, we have forgiveness of sin. In Christ, we have the love and mercy that sustains us and upholds us in this life. Lord, we confess that our lives are riddled with failures and sins. Sins that we are far too quick to justify in ourselves and condemn in others. Lord, we confess our hypocrisies, our failures. But we also confess the sufficient grace and mercy that is in Jesus Christ. The glorious gospel that Jesus came into the world to save sinners and he does not fail to do so. To save all those who trust in his name. Lord, we pray that you would use us to spread the glorious message of grace that is in Jesus Christ. A message that we bear in our very souls and bodies. That we testify not in theory, but in practice and experience. And Father, we pray that you would use our church to reach the community around us, the people who live around us, that we interact with. And Father, we pray that you would use our missionaries, that you would inspire our support of them that we would support them generously and faithfully, and that they would go forth with the joy of Christ in them, carrying forth the gospel of light in a world of darkness, that they may shine for the sake of the kingdom of God. And we pray for your light to spread throughout the world. Lord, may you work through our church and our missionaries to that end. And we pray this all in the glorious and precious and beautiful name of Jesus. Amen.